Hello and welcome to BGS English Revision Podcast. I'm Mr. Forster and I'm here with one of our wonderful scholars. Hi, I'm Loretta Stoica, I'm in LOSIC and I'm currently studying the IB. And here the IB indoctrination uh, begins. A wonderful <laughs> course you should all consider. Yeah, um, go IB. So we're here today to talk about, um, uh, to help you structure your revision, because revising for English is incredibly difficult. And one thing that we're trying to do is support you through these podcasts. So we're going to be working our way through the play and we're preparing really for paper three here, the drama paper on Othello. So in the exam, you'll have 45 minutes, or if you have extra time, of course, you'll have 25% or 50% on top of that, but 45 minutes to write one essay. And you'll have, always have a choice of two, an extract question, where you'll be given the extract from the play and have a question on a, a specific moment, or a more broad question on a theme or a character in the whole play. Which were you more of a fan of, looking back to last year? Definitely the extract one. It meant that you could do your in-depth analysis really easily without having to bring in your own quotations. Yeah, and the advantage is, although you have a copy of the text in the exam, it's really hard finding them. And in 45 minutes, actually, it's quite tricky finding them. So, yeah. so having that extract right in front of you and focusing on it, I think really can help you pick up the marks for analysis, um, which is where, obviously, kind of we're focusing our efforts. So in today's session, you can hear the, the, the lovely singing going on in the background as we prepare for <laughs> Battle of the Bands. I hope it's not too distracting. But uh, in, in today's session, we're going to talk our way through a plan that Loretta and I have constructed for this question. And we're going to talk through how we might structure our answer and some of the analysis we might do. The reason for this is not necessarily because this question might come up. Um, but more to give you an idea on how you can structure the kind of things you're looking for, things that happen, things that Shakespeare does that actually you can comment on in many different scenes, mm. not just this one. So let's have a look at this extra. Where's, where's the extra taken taken from, Rutter? At uh, the end of Act One, Scene Three. Yeah, which is the very end of Act One. So this is our final moments in Venice before the play moves to Cyprus. So <clears throat> at this point in the play, we've. We've been introduced to Iago's um, kind of manipulative nature, but this is this re this piece really underlines because our question for today is how does Shakespeare present Iago at this moment in the play? So I should take a brief moment moment now to say there is a handout that goes along with the episode, and if you're listening on um, Apple or Spotify. You should be able to click in the, the details, the, the bio, the bio um, and that should bring it to you. That will have the, the question itself. Um, with the extract, it will have the key vocabulary that Loretta and I use today, and it will also have a, bit of a bullet point plan um, so you can follow our arguments. And it might be great for your revision folders to copy this over to your OneNotes or, or print it out if you're a Luddite. What's a Luddite? <laughs> Uh, someone who is lazy. No, no, no. Someone who hates technology. Um, uh, like a lot of my department, someone who doesn't like new things, um, like iPads. Um, so um, we're going to have a little... <coughs> uh, let's have a look. So the extract starts with Rodrigo talking to Iago on stage, and then it ends at the very end of Act 1, Scene through 3, when Iago has a soliloquy on stage. Can you remember what a soliloquy is? It is talking to yourself. Yeah, talk to the, so it's like a stage convention of Elizabeth, in Elizabethan theatre of a bit like a voiceover in modern films of talking to the audience to reveal the characters in a thought. And obviously, this is crucial in our understanding of Iago. So, um, I always talk instead of talking about introductions. I always talk about kind of thesis statements. Um, why do I do that? What is a thesis, Loretta? Um, Mr. Forster loves to use um, the etymology of thesis. 
um, which means to the essay of essay. <laughs> oh, I'm getting it wrong. <laughs> essay, which means to try, and a thesis is you're pushing forward an idea, a thought. You're trying out an idea, yeah. a thought experiment. You're absolutely right. So, it's, it's what, <laughs> what, what, you're know, under a lot of pressure here. Um, um, what, what, what we're kind of trying to do in our thesis is kind of get across to the examiner that we've got a slant on the question. Because actually, if you look at the mark scheme, two of the bullet points talk about how this personal response. So you want to show the examiner from the first paragraph that you you have thoughts. You don't use those awful phrases that make one to be sick, like, you know, Shakespeare uses language to interest the reader. It doesn't mean anything. It's totally like empty. We need to have a clear um, and focused thesis. So this is, um, do you mind reading um, the thesis that we've got on the sure. sheet? Act one ends, as it began, with Iago and Rodrigo on stage together, planning Othello's downfall. By this point in the play, we already have a disquieting understanding of the complexities of his character, with his many asides and soliloquies revealing the extent of his envy, prejudices, duplicity and Machiavellian intent. Thank you. So it's quite short. Like It's a 45-minute essay. We don't have long. We don't want to waste words. Um, but what kind of things are we setting up about Iago and Arthur? What things are we presumably going to explore in this essay? You're first contextualising the extract, saying um, where it falls at the end of Act 1 and introducing who is in the extract. Yeah, and then we're looking at the idea of actually we're focusing on the question, which is what's Iago like? And I think the word disquieting is quite useful. There's something uncomfortable, something unsettling about his mm. characterisation. We, we've touched upon narrative methods, his asides and soliloquies that we'll talk about. So obviously asides and soliloquies where you're talking directly to the audience. Um, and what we're really saying is that the crucial thing about Iago here is that he's envious, he's prejudiced, He's duplicity. What, what's, what, he's duplicitous. What does duplicity mean? Um, deceitful. Yeah, deceitful. And also that he's defined by this Machiavellian intent. So do you know who, who is Nikolai Machiavelli? He is an Italian writer who wrote... Well, was. He's been dead a long time. Was. <laughs> who wrote a novel. Not a novel. A, a kind of political philosophy. A political is, philosophy. Um, <laughs> called The Prince. And it examines kind of what it means to get ahead in politics, really. And so, so Machiavelli as an adjective comes to refer to someone who's cunning, scheming, unscrupulous, someone who will do anything to get power, which I think is a great adjective to describe um, Iago. So in your revision notes, these are great words to kind of write down around Iago, to, to already think through how could we be describing him. So in a 45-minute essay, um, there are some super quick writers like Loretta who <laughs> might be able to write more, but for most of us mere mortals, um, three, <laughs> three main paragraphs is probably about the amount that we'll have time to cover. Um, I think three kind of well-developed, detailed points is a good, a good number to aim for in a plan. If you know that you're a really quick writer, you can plan for more and, and do do that, um, but it's essentially about kind of knowing yourself. So we're going to start off by talking about Iago's manipulation of Rodrigo. Then we're going to talk about um, his hatred of Othello. And finally, we're going to talk about actually um, this kind of erratic inconsistency in Iago's character and, and kind of how actually it becomes clear that actually he's not fully in control, perhaps, of what he's saying in the soliloquy. So that's our three sections. So I always talk about topic sentences at the start of a paragraph. What are we trying to do in that opening sentence of a paragraph? Summarise your point of that yeah, we're trying to make it really easy for the examiner to quickly get a sense of, well, what are you arguing? It's like a mini thesis, it ties into your thesis. So our first one is... Am I reading it out yes. loud? Okay. Yes, please. Um, it is a podcast, it helps to read things out loud rather than in our heads. Is it just <laughs> the one. first? Okay, yeah. um, think about the immediate juxtaposition. Oh, no, before, before the one. Oh, ah, isn't that... Oh, okay, there we go. That's the thesis. So, so no, Iago's deceit. 
Oh, Iago's deceit is certainly apparent in his manipulation of Rodrigo. So our first paragraph is looking at... Sorry, my hand up's not very clear. Um, <laughs> so if you're following on the hand up, the bit Loretta struggled to find there is, is, is the point number one. Iago's deceit is certainly apparent in his manipulation of Rodrigo. We're, we're examining here um, how does Iago deceitfully manipulate someone who, who claims to be his, his friend and companion. So Rodrigo is very much this clown figure in the play, isn't he? He's a bit of a ridiculous figure. He's, he's socially superior to Iago, but his, his inability to kind of see himself, to realise that he has no chance with Desdemona, that he is, he's, makes him into a fool. And we're going to start by analysing how actually, although Iago says he wants to help Rodrigo to cuckold Othello for sport, so that is to make Desdemona be um, unfaithful to him, and sports implying for, for, for fun, um, and although he talks to Rodrigo's need to make money in order to support these endeavours and help Rodrigo, there's this tonal shift in the soliloquy that really shows just how duplicitous he is. So in that, in that soliloquy, um, Loretta, what do you make of that opening line of the soliloquy? What, what, what's the sudden shift? He's gone from saying, you know, <laughs> no more of drowning. He's, he's saving Rodrigo from suicide. He's saying, don't, don't, don't do anything crazy. I'm going to help you. And then Iago, Rodrigo walks off stage. Iago steps forward and says what? He says, thus do I ever make my fool my purse. Yeah, it's such a, a strange and disturbing metaphor, isn't it? Why? He's sort of taking away... Um, Rodrigo's like, human aspects and just turning him into some sort of thing that he can monopolise from, just a purse to get money from. And yeah. store. You, could, you could talk about here as, as, in terms of kind of metonymy. So metonymy is a type of metaphor where you talk about something in terms of what it's associated with. So Parliament announced today means the government announced today. Um, the Crown said means the Queen said. Mm. Um, so here we can see that kind of, the idea of him as a purse Metonymically defines him by what? By his money. By his money, um, and this kind of shows this kind of selfish nature of Iago, who sees people around him in terms of what they can offer him. And certainly, the idea of fool him as a fool does tie in with our understanding of Rodrigo as an audience, but is not the sympathetic Iago that we've previously seen on stage, is it at all? Mm. What about him as a snipe? There's some lovely singing going on in the background. Yeah. So catch this. Um, what's the effect of, of Rodrigo as a snipe? A snipe is. Um quite a small bird, isn't it? That it's an insignificant wing yeah. bird. He's not some sort of like huge and powerful, like amazing eagle or something like that, but quite an insignificant yeah. snipe that can be easily manipulated. Yeah, something to be used hunted to for sport, Iago. used, eaten, consumed. And it ties, it picks on this motif in the play of Iago referring to to all those around him with this bestial imagery. I made the mistake of trying to type that into to Google, bestial imagery in Othello, which I, wouldn't, um, I got Do blocked on the school then. server. <laughs> got blocked on the school <laughs> server. So obviously I was searching for this, but um, that's not what was interpreted by, um, by our, our smooth wall. So um, Iago describes Othello as a Barbary horse, as an old black ram. He describes Desdemona as a white ewe. Rodrigo's planned suicide. He describes him as being the act of a baboon. So. All of this, and it's, it's worth in the exam, if you can remember, bits in the extract that link to other bits. That's a really impressive sign to the examiner. Um, but what does this suggest about his conception of the world, of everyone's animals around him? It's quite primal. We're all yeah. just, there's no sort of like rationalism to us. We all just act on our like primal instincts and emotions. Yeah, it's quite Darwinian almost. Yeah. The strongest will survive. Everyone's anim driven not by any kind of facade of civilization, but by kind of primal animal needs. And it ties in also with his pathological focus on sex in the play, this kind of where he just makes it into this disturbing, disgusting thing mm. that he's constantly talking about. But the thing I think is interesting here that we want to analyze is it's always worth analyzing not just what's said, but the structure of it, the staging. 
Because obviously what I immediately notice here is that um, he, he, he talks to Rodrigo in prose. What, what is prose, Greta? Prose is how we're speaking now. Just yeah, it's normal, ordinary speech. Yeah, ordinary speech. But as soon as Rodrigo leaves the stage, he switches into verse. Blank verse, specifically. That means unrhymed iambic pentameters. There's five beats in each line. Thus do I ever make my fool my purse, for I, mine own gain knowledge, should profane. Da-dum, 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 da-dum. There's five beats in each line. If you can't spot that, don't worry. The easy way to spot it is, do all the lines end in exactly the same place? It's very likely to be verse. And if you're not sure if it's verse, if you count the syllables, there'll be about ten, between nine and eleven generally. So if every line has between nine and eleven syllables, you're very likely looking at verse. That's like me tapping my pen in the exam to figure <laughs> so, out. Yeah, so, it's all going... Yeah. Um, that means they're probably trying to work it out. But this, um, for an early modern audience, would signal this kind of tonal shift. He's also presumably, in terms of what he's doing on stage, moving from the back of the stage, which we refer to as the locus, into the platia. Um, the word is defined and spelt on your, on your sheet for you. But it's a really useful idea to think about not just what he's saying, but where's he standing? Because what does this do if the actor playing Iago shifts the way he's speaking, the meter, he's suddenly speaking in blank verse, he walks to the front of the stage um, to address the audience. What does this establish about, about this moment? Um, it could be that he's sort of moving to a different um, area in his mind, sort of like shifting inwards and thinking internally about what is going on. Um, yeah, I, it, it, it's showing this duplicity, isn't it? The, the idea that, that the, the Iago we saw with Rodrigo is not the same Iago we now see address us. Many sides, rather. And what's so disturbing about him is that in Act One, the character whose thoughts we see the most of is the villain. We are aligned, we are encouraged to associate, to understand, to explore the mind of the villain. It's something that Shakespeare's already done earlier in his career in Richard III, um, and that he will, he will come back to a few more times. But it's, it is quite a disturbing idea that actually we're being encouraged to <coughs> associate with a man whose mind is, is pathologically focused on hatred. Um, uh, it is quite a disturbing moment. So finally, really, my, my last point about this is that his manipulations of Rodrigo, of course, foreshadow the way in which he'll manipulate Othello. It's, it's precisely the same things he does to a, to a Rodrigo that he does to Othello later. Um, uh, something encapsulated, as he uses in, in his simile, that Othello will be um, led by the nose, as asses are. Um, uh, uh, again, tying this, this motif of animal imagery, that, that this moment in the play, he manipulates Rodrigo by telling him one thing, but thinking something else. This is precisely what he does to Othello. So what are we going to look at next then? If our first paragraph is all about his duplicity, what's our next... Uh, the question is, of course, on Iago at this moment. What's our next paragraph going to focus on? Can you read the next topic sentence for us? Yeah, I know where it is this time. <laughs> the extract does, however, also reveal Iago's deep-seated hatred of Othello. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about Iago's nomenclature, first of all. What does that mean? Um, it means... The devising or choosing of names for things. Yeah, so it's the idea. So when we're talking about the nomenclature, we're saying what do we call things or people? And what's interesting about Iago's nomenclature in the play is that he doesn't call Othello Othello. What does he call it? The more. The more, or or a series of zoomorphic metaphors that we see in the play. What does this do to our understanding of Othello? If he's if he's the more, if he's not given his name, what is he being defined as? Where he's from. Where he's from. So, and not even his race, because in early modern society, more was, uh, has specific religious connotations. It referred to North African Muslims, because the, the nature of racism in early modern society was different, just as harmful as it is in modern society. But religion played a much bigger part than perhaps it does today in, 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 in kind of xenophobia. Um, and defining him as, a raw, as more is defining him as other. 
making him seem like the Ottoman fleet that threatens Venice, when in fact he's a general in the Venetian army. He's a Christian. He is well-spoken, eloquent, powerful. He's, he's married to the daughter of a Venetian noblewoman. He in, could not be more ingrained in Venetian society. So what's the effect of this, of this choosing to call him more? It makes us almost sympathise, not sympathise with Iago, that's the wrong word, um, but it makes us associate Othello with being different, with having this alterity yeah. about him. Very nice. Alterity, lovely word. What does it mean? Um, otherness. Yeah, otherness. I love you. I'll, I'll add it to the handout. <laughs> so um, we also see in this extract that he has very real motivations for hating Othello. Um, he says that his course is hearted. What does that metaphor mean? If, you're, if you've got, your course is hearted, it's coming from... The heart, yeah. So it's the idea that it, that it is a genuine, emotionally felt um, hatred. But he then says it's a sport. What's the contradiction there between his, his hatred being hearted and it also being a sport? What's, what does that maybe hint to us about the nature of his hatred? If it's, it's a sport, it's... It's like sort of fun, almost. Fun. And well, do it for pleasure and... Whereas heart is suggests he's doing it because of deep felt yeah. emotion. So even here, we're starting to see slight contradictions in, his, in the nature of his hatred. Um... There's also, of course, the, 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 the a very real reason that we find here, alongside his jealousy of Cassio and Othello's preferment of him as, to make him his lieutenant, alongside his racist disgust at interracial relationships, we also learn of his suspicions that his wife, Amelia, may have slept with Othello. He says, it is thought abroad that twixt my sheets, he's done my office. So we perhaps learn that actually there is this, and he echoes this later when he talks about uh, revenging him wife for wife. It's being a, a sort of, but there's no other references to this in the play, and it certainly doesn't seem there. It's, it's a very strange moment, but perhaps goes some way to explaining this otherwise motiveless um, hatred. That, so is Iago sexually insecure? Yeah, there's definitely a question that we could ask in our essays. Lovely. So, moving on to our third point then. We've talked already about um, his manipulations, we've talked about his hatred. What are we going to finish by? Can you read our final topic sentence? Yet, crucially, the intimacy Shakespeare generates between Iago and the audience adds not to our understanding of his character, but only to a disturbing sense of his erratic inconsistency. Yeah, so in our first paragraph, we argued that actually we understand him because of his asides. What we're trying to show the examiner now is that we've got, we can look at looking at this a different way, actually. His asides, rather than telling us more about him, actually confuse things even more. We think we know him, but actually, um, we don't. And one of my favourite lines in the whole play is this one. He says, I hate the more and it is thought abroad that twixt my sheets he's done my office. Um, there's lots of critical discussion around this coordinating conjunction and because and doesn't imply a logical connection. Um, if he said I hate the more because it's thought that he's done my office betwixt my sheets, you know, had, 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 um, had sexual relations with his wife, then that would be understandable. But what's the effect of saying and? It's like he's trying to find excuses for hating them all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's saying this isn't the reason, but he has also um, made my wife unfaithful. It's suggesting the origins of his hatred predate even a concept of his wife's infidelity, if indeed she has been unfaithful to him. So I think it's, this is a moment where if you can zoom in on a single word in an essay, it's a really great moment of showing that close textual analysis. Um, and we see lots of other caprices. So caprice is a word that's very close to my heart because one year I taught an A-level class and the, the question in the exam was discuss the significance of caprice and no one knew what it meant, um, which I found very reassuring because then the examiner's report, um, what it actually said is take any, any definition of the word caprice. So a brief bit of exam technique there. If you don't understand the question, just decide on what it means and answer it. Go ahead. Um, obviously, it's better to understand it. But caprice means being changeable, changing your mind all the time. So what other elements of caprice do we see in Iago changing his mind? 
I mean, we talked already about this idea of it, is it sport or profit that he's doing um, that he's doing this for. But one thing that I think that's interesting that I'd like to focus on by finishing really with is all of these caesuras and midline shifts in his soliloquy. So he's speaking in blank verse, but it's this fractured blank, blank verse. He's constantly pausing, stopping, talking about different things. What's the effect of that? If we look at all these caesuras, so he says, uh, we have a caesura after, but for sport and profit, caesura, I hate them more. Um, we'll do it for surety, caesura, he holds me well. Um, as asses are, caesura. I have it, Caesura. It is engendered, Caesura. Helen Knight. What's the effect of all of these breaks up of the breaking up of the blank verse? It shows his sort of like sporadic thinking and how he just jumps about and he's very almost sort of unstable in his like streams of thoughts and yeah. how he's going to go about bringing down Othello. That's a lovely way of putting it. My favourite example that perhaps we could analyse is where he says right towards the end he says um, he says um, and will as tenderly be led by the nose as asses are. You'll note this is blank verse, but as asses are is a two-beat line. There's only two metrical feet. A foot is like a, a stressed beat in a line, as asses are. Um, and of course, Iambic pentameter requires five. So what follows is blank space. So this is Shakespeare deliberately breaking the rhythm of the, the verse to do what's this going to do on stage? What's going to be left hanging over the audience and Iago stood alone in the platio looking out at the audience? What's, gonna, what, what's there? Nothing. Silence. That this is this is an uncomfortable moment. The the verse requires three more poetic feet that kind of hang precariously in silence on the stage. As before his final pronouncement of "I have it," it is engendered, and it places this really peculiar emphasis, I think, on this final disturbing metaphor. The idea of his plan being engendered is a metaphor of kind of of birth. It picks up on this earlier idea of this idea of his plan plan being conceived in the womb of time being a monstrous birth. Like he's conceiving of his destruction of Othello as this kind of monstrous, this monstrous birth, this kind of inversion of what we associate with birth, as if he is birthing a monster. It's a really truly disturbing thing that's, that suggests this kind of idea of him as this devilish figure, doesn't it? I think also an interesting thing about the fact that um, he's he's the one who's giving birth, it could bring light to the fact that maybe he feels quite emasculated compared to Othello, mm. and again would sort of um, link to that insecurity that he feels in his own masculinity. That's a lovely idea. We could, that's a lovely idea that we could say that actually certainly through the play there's this idea that you know, Emilia asks him why they've been no longer sleeping together. There's this, mm. and some commentators on the play even see the sexual tension between Iago and Othello himself. But certainly there is this in this inversion of kind of you know the, of, of women giving birth, it being him giving birth mm. to this evil. We have this kind of total sense of that that he's not bringing giving birth to life; he's giving birth to destruction. His like insidious is, motherhood. Of yes, something. lovely. So I think that brings us nicely to a conclusion, really. And our conclusion is actually that this sets up many things about Iago, because crucially it sets up his central unknowability, that actually, as we'll find out in Act 5, when he's finally kind of um, undone by the one person who can do that, um, his wife, Amelia, um, he refuses to say anything, even under threat of torture, he says, demand me nothing, what you know, you know. Um, so this, what, what's, what's this setting up about his motivations, about him as a character? What might be our final thing that we'd say on this essay, really? What, what is this moment? What is it telling us about Iago? That we still don't really know what his motivations are. We've got an idea of it, but really it's just the sort of like ramblings of some man that's slipping into madness almost. Yeah, and I think that's a really nice point to end on, really, that actually 
in the whole of Act One, even though Iago talks more than any other character on stage, even though he is the one that gives us his asides and soliloquies, what we're left with is grasping at shadows. We don't know what or who he is. <laughs> 